This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. In this episode, we're talking about smart justice. Pennsylvania has the highest incarceration rate in the Northeast. On any given day, there are more than 80,000 people in the Commonwealth's prisons and jails, and more than 30,000 of them have not been convicted of a crime. They're being held before trial, often because they are too poor to pay the bail to get out. Pennsylvania also has the fourth highest number of people on probation or parole in the entire country. The Campaign for Smart Justice is a new initiative from the ACLU with the goals of reducing the prison population by 50% and addressing the racial disparities in the criminal justice system. In this episode, I talk with two key figures in this effort, John Dye Harrell of the Center for Returning Citizens in Philadelphia and Terrell Thomas, the senior field organizer for the ACLU of Pennsylvania's Campaign for Smart Justice in Pittsburgh. In this conversation, John Dye talks about the challenges facing people after they leave prison and what he considers the biggest priorities to address mass incarceration. Then you'll hear from Terrell, who talks about the recent launch of the Campaign for Smart Justice and why Pittsburgh is a key locale in our reform effort. Here we go. John Dye, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. And the name of your organization might be self-explanatory, but I'm wondering if you can tell folks, what is the Center for Returning Citizens? So TCRC Philly, the Center for Returning Citizens, is a nonprofit organization that was organized to, at first, look at the needs of folks who are returning, how we can find employment, how we can find jobs, how we can refer to necessary services, how we can help a person to successfully transition from incarceration to freedom. And as we did our work, we just expanded and we realized we had to advocate more. So we started advocating. We started doing voter registration, voter education, because formerly incarcerated people in Pennsylvania can vote. And it's extremely important for us to exercise our rights as returning citizens. We started doing more organizing because there was a lot of different organizations who were not only doing reentry, but who were attacking mass incarceration on many different levels. So now we simply say that our mission is to battle mass incarceration, to work for a more holistic criminal justice system, and we do everything that needs to be done on many different levels for our constituents who are returning citizens, for their families, friends, and our community. So you're providing both direct service and doing policy advocacy, it sounds like. What's a typical day like for you? So a, um, a typical day is um, this morning I went over to um, Google Industries, which is our fiduciary and has been extremely supportive of our work. Many folks don't realize that Goodwill Industries not only helps disabled people, but many Goodwills have sheltered workshops for returning citizens. In fact, that was my very, very first job in 2009 when I came home, and I formed a very good relationship with them, and they continue to support our work. So I went over there to pick up a couple checks because without resources, you can't do this. And I came back and um, around one o'clock, I went to the Institute for Criminal Justice and I taught a anger management class 
in conjunction with Frontline Dads, which is one of our brother organizations. And then we're having this podcast. And then at six, I'm going to be doing a class at LaSalle University for Professor Caitlin Taylor called The Consequences of Mass Incarceration. And that's from six to seven. And then I'll go home to my home office and I'll work on some proposals for ventures that we're doing that can move our nonprofit forward. So each day is different, but it's, it's exciting and it's uh, well-filled. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a long day, but very fulfilling. How long have you been involved in, and, ha- and how did you get involved with TCRC? Well, I actually um, founded uh, TCRC when I came home in 2009. I quickly realized that in order to fulfill my dreams, I needed help. I needed to connect with necessary services to move me forward so that I could establish myself and I could realize my dream of creating a nonprofit that impacted formerly incarcerated people. And I realized in my searching that those who were purporting to do this weren't doing it from the perspective of returning citizens. They were doing it from the perspective of social workers or bureaucrats or um, academians. And frankly, I thought I could do it better. I thought that I could create a organization that was more family orientated, that considered the real needs of those who are coming home and just handled any problem that came in the door. And it wasn't just a nine to five. You know, we receive phone calls and do work at all hours of the day or night, seven days a week. And that's what we do. So it seems like uh, at least from from my experiences, people have a vague sense that there are hurdles for people who are leaving prison, but they don't really have a, a real understanding of what's that like. So I'm wondering, I wonder if you can walk us through that. What's life like for a person the moment they walk out of the prison doors? Well, the first thing is to reintegrate yourself with some sort of support system. For some people who are blessed to have a family, it means reuniting with their family, reuniting with their children, whether or not they've gotten regular visits inside or not. That kind of varies individual to individual, but it's linking to a support system that can provide housing, that can provide strong relationships. Often it's finding employment as immediate as possible. You have to make a living. For many people, it's going to a halfway house, which can provide that transitional period until you can become sustainable. That's extremely important. Um, Myself, I spent six months in a halfway house, and I found it helpful in some instances, harmful in others. It depends on the halfway house you go to. But the main thing is having a transitional period to adjust to life, to adjust to everything that's going on. Because when you're incarcerated, you're in such a structured society. And you have to come home and you have to just flow back into the ebb and flow of everyday living, support yourself, build relationships, move forward. And often that's problematic depending on your skill level, on your work experience, on what level of support you have, and your talents, you know, what you can really do. So you've talked about transition, employment, housing. Um, I'm wondering, you know, do you, or do you think those are probably the biggest hurdles for folks coming out, or are there other hurdles that they have to face as well? I think those are the elemental hurdles. You have to have housing. You have to be able to feed and clothe yourself so you need employment. Those are the things that most ordinary folks take for granted because they have them, and they've always had them. But when a person is in their 30s or their 40s and they've been down for varying lengths of time, 
and they're coming out of prison literally with the, the clothes on their back and a prison ID. I mean, these these are formidable hurdles. But as we look at short and long-term goals, then we're talking about building relationships. We're talking about reintegrating into the fabric of your neighborhood, of the larger community, voting, being a part of society, doing the things that most folks take for granted and they do them every day. So the TCRC and the ACLUPA have been partners in launching a campaign for smart justice. Um, this is an effort to reduce the prison population in half and combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. There are so many things in the criminal justice system that need reformed. Um, it's hard to prioritize some over others. But I'm wondering from your perspective, um, what do you think are the most pressing issues in the criminal justice system? Well, we work with the ACLU on issues of bail reform. I think that pretrial services and how people enter the system is extremely important. If you have a system where you have either low bail or no bail, and a person can then begin to work on the problems that propel them into the criminal justice system, they have a much better chance of receiving a favorable outcome when they go to court. In terms of the programs inside of facilities, we view the present penal system as punitive, and there are very few programs that can provide holistic care and really get to the root of, of a person's problems, deal with their mental illnesses, their drug dependencies, or mental or physical abuse that have occurred earlier in their life. And many folks in prison are damaged, but there's really no real mechanisms to address that level of trauma they've endured in their lives, instead they're introduced to a whole new level of drama that the prison system manufactures. And then they're released and they're expected to set aside all of that combined trauma and just fit back into ordinary society like it never happened. And that's unrealistic. So we need to look at how we can make the criminal justice system more holistic from the door and make it more transformative and set into place mechanisms during pretrial, during incarceration, and then look at re-entry as a vehicle for setting a person up for a successful transition. And so much of the system is just not set up for that. It's set up for monitoring and parole and containment, not elevation. And one of the most important players there in what you just described is a district attorney. Um, I know that you were active in the DA's race uh, last year here in Philadelphia in 2017. <laughs> Talk a little bit about DA accountability and what, what kind of changes you've seen in the last uh, seven to eight months here in Philadelphia. So we were very active in the DA's race in two phases. TCRC Philly, as a nonprofit, does voter education and voter registration. We believe that it's extremely important as one of 15 states where returning citizens are allowed to vote as soon as they come out of a facility that we push that in our community. If you really want to be a citizen, then you must exercise the responsibilities of citizenship, which is voting. In terms of the DA's race, had you told me 10 years ago when I was doing time in USP Atlanta that I'd be home in Philadelphia actively campaigning for a DA, 
I would have thought that you fell down and cracked your cranium. <laughs> and um, it would have never happened. But I met Larry Krasner. I believed in his his thought process, his values. I looked at his body of work, and I believed in his vision of transforming the culture of the Philadelphia the criminal justice system into something totally different. And as a member of the Block Party, which stands for Build, Lobby, Organize, Campaign, which is the first political action committee for formerly incarcerated people in the city of Philadelphia and the state of Pennsylvania, we actively campaigned with Reclaim Philadelphia. We knocked on 60,000 doors in North Philadelphia. We encouraged incarcerated persons to send letters, make phone calls to their families, and encourage them across the city to vote for Larry Krasner. And we were part of a massive grassroots effort, which propelled him into power. And now I'm a part of the Coalition for Just DA, which is a group that not only helps to elect him, but holds him accountable and works with him to fulfill the values and the goals and the campaign promises that he made, which is extremely important because we often elect officials and we rarely hold them accountable after the election. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because sometimes people think the election is the end when actually it's just the beginning. Um, And then to that, I mean, I realize that D.A. Krasner has only been in office for just over seven months, but what do you think so far? I think that he has, in my mind, surpassed the expectations of those who supported him. He's certainly surpassed the expectations of the FOP and and those who um, fought against him. I think that he is probably the most dynamic in vision of any DA in the country and that Philadelphia is now the epicenter of a a criminal justice change that could have far-reaching effects across the nation. So if folks listening to this want to be supportive of TCRC, how can, what are your needs? How can they get involved? Volunteering, financial support, what, what kind of, where can you direct people if they want to help? Well, they can go to our website. First of all, let me say that fighting against mass incarceration, mass incarceration is $185 billion, 24 hour, seven day a week operation. And organizations like TCRC Philly do it with a small paid staff, interns, volunteers. So our most pressing needs, I'll be clear, is finances. At the moment, in fact, when you came in, I was on the phone trying to find housing for a young man who came home and he has nowhere to go. We want to, to purchase and renovate transitional housing so that we can house folks who are coming home. We have our day-to-day operations. There are so many things that we need and we're moving forward. So you can go to tcrcphilly.org, tcrcphilly.org, and hit our PayPal button. Look at our website, look at the work we're doing, watch some of the videos, share our values and our commitment, and first support us financially. And then what you can also do is if you live in the Philadelphia area, you can get involved with the organizations that we're involved with, the Coalition for Adjust DA, Decarcerate PA. There are many organizations that are associated with us who are in need of not only resources, but volunteers, people on the ground to make phone calls, to write letters to prisoners, to to come to rallies, to organize, and to push those who are in power to do the right thing. So definitely get involved. TCRCPhilly.org. You can also go on our, our Facebook page. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, 
support us. Thanks, John. I really appreciate your time and appreciate your work. Thanks so much for coming to Philly and interviewing me. Thanks again to John Harrell for taking the time to talk. Now we're going to hear from Terrell Thomas from the ACLU PA staff. Terrell is helping to build our campaign for smart justice in Allegheny County in an effort to push key decision makers into implementing reform to the criminal justice system. Terrell talks about the needs of the coalition that we're building and the very personal reason why he got involved in community service. Terrell, at the end of July, we launched the Campaign for Smart Justice. It launched in Pittsburgh with a press conference and a launch party. What does that mean? What were those actions all about? Um, The press release was um, notifying the public that we had been doing some work here. We had um, centralized a a lot of grassroots um, organizations and leaders and activists. We have about 150 members in our coalition, so we just wanted to make them uh, aware that we were here working in Pittsburgh trying to bring smart justice here to Allegheny County. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that specifically because the launch happened in your hometown of Pittsburgh. Um, I wanted to dig into that a little bit. Why why Pittsburgh? What's happening there that makes it central to the campaign? Yeah, black Pittsburghers are locked up, are 12 times more likely to be locked up, incarcerated. Um, we only make up about 13% of the population here, but we represent 50% of the prison population. Um, some tats on, on Pennsylvania in the south, you know, we're the second largest prison population in the country. Um, Pennsylvania has the highest incarceration rate in the northeast, fourth in the whole country. One out of seven people on parole and probation live here in Pennsylvania. So the statistics really show you that uh, we're not as progressive as people think. Uh, this is a really um, it's a bad place uh, on criminal justice reform and things like that. And that's what we're here to institute. Can you talk a little bit about the probation and parole issue? Because I, I wanted to flag that uh, I was as I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking a little bit about that. There are probation and parole are two different things. Parole is when a person has been incarcerated and they get released, they're on parole. Probation is a sentence sometimes that people get um, either instead of incarceration or in addition to. Um, but Am I right? You know, people often who are on probation or parole end up going back to prison, right? Yeah, oftentimes the, they get paroled out. There's no cap on parole. And so you're still living under the confines of the justice system. Um, it's like any little thing that you do, you know, you're going back to jail. We're not going. We, the prison system is no longer truly about rehabilitation. And so people are coming out there. Their mental health issues are not being addressed. There's no workforce development inside of the prison. There's money. Um, that are not being invested into workforce development uh, programs here inside of the city. And so I know people who come home with the best intentions, but they don't have any resources. They're, they're, they're facing homelessness, and uh, they get sent back for the smallest infractions. There's no cap on these things as well. And even with the probation, you know, you get, you get uh, charged. They send you to, you know, four years probation for, for small offenses, and you're walking on eggshells. But yet and still, they're not putting people in positions to receive a meaningful employment, meaningful housing, or any meaningful um, either drug and, al- drug and alcohol rehabilitation or any type of mental uh, health uh, diagnosis are, are being taken place. And so they're still facing the same issues that led them down uh, making those um, infractions, those crimes in the first place. And they're just left to assume or left to roam to do something, but not left with options that are going to benefit them in the future. 
You know, I think the thing that people don't understand, and you use the word infractions, which I think is uh, an important word to use because the a lot of these folks, you know, the the, um, the requirements of parole or probation can be so stringent that people aren't actually committing a new crime. This isn't somebody coming out of prison and then committing a new crime. They may be going back for things that if they weren't on probation or parole would not be a crime, right? Yeah, I mean, I know people have been sitting back because they missed a phone call and um, or things of that nature. They've been they were late on they missed the bus. And so when they were supposed to be home at nine o'clock, they got home at nine thirty. That's a violation of your probation. That's a violation of your parole, uh, more or less your parole. And now you, you have a good chance of being sent back to prison. They live in communities where they say you're not supposed to have contact with felons. But if, I mean, you're living in communities where the criminal justice system has impacted everybody just walking down the street or going to the corner store. You have a chance of being around convicted felons, and I mean, so well, you're, you're not put in the position to succeed; they're put in the position to fail. And with these privatized prisons and some of the other things that are um, that that are going on right now, it kind of makes us all wonder if we're just being sold off into slavery, if we're just being sold off into society that we, you know, we're not wanted. You know, Terrell, when you got to the ACLU of Pennsylvania in April, you had already been involved in the community for years. Um, tell us more about that. What kind of community projects have you been involved in? <laughs> Uh, the executive director of the Isaiah Project, which is youth development, it's more of a proactive, preventive program to keep kids out of trouble. So we deal with at-risk kids, but we don't use the term at-risk. We just use the term kids who happen to live in these same communities where a lot of these other uh, atrocities are taking place. And so we really work with our children to make sure they graduate from high school. We monitor everything that they're doing. They have to maintain um, a solid grade point average. We have a workforce development program to ensure that these kids are being paid. Uh, we make sure that these kids are every kid that's in our program. Um, we've been over in operation for over 10 years, has been accepted to post-secondary education. And we try to provide them with a mentor that's in their in their liking, in their career field, their desired career field, to make sure they just understand what it takes to be a journalist and understand what it takes to be a, uh, a doctor, to understand what it takes to be an athlete. Whatever their dreams or aspirations are, we try to align them with somebody who can really guide them through because we see that's what really um, has been successful with other people who've had quality mentors in their life. Um, I've worked with violence prevention, working with um, hardcore gang uh, members, going into street corners, getting these guys off of the street, helping them get jobs, helping them get licensed, helping them own homes. Um, I'm a landlord in our city. Uh, I've done community development, neighborhood development, and really working towards helping people who have been marginalized, who people have been forgotten, people who have been oppressed and depressed, and getting them in the position of power, of influence in the community. Because one of our models here is um, you want to lift the voices of impacted individuals. And so I always knew that that was important. I just didn't have the terminology behind it. And so when I wanted to have an influence on my community, I went out into the street corners and knew people who were influential. When I wanted to affect people who I believe who had a chance of losing their lives at a young age, I, our community center was uh, was built behind that. So, and you've told me before that you got involved in community work when you were 15 years old. Why? Why, why did you get involved in community service work? Um, so my brother was murdered at a young age. He died um, protecting me. Uh, we were at a basketball game, um, shooting a couple games of um, you know hoops, and a masked man came out of the woods, um, came up to his car, and was shooting. There was a bunch of people around. Just so be it that I was I was in my brother's car, and he didn't run and leave. He actually covered up my body, and um, and he passed away. Um, shortly after that, my mother, who was a vice president in a, in a firm down here selling securities, left her job um, and started working as um, a community activist. And, and so by then, I knew there was some work that I, that had to be done. I didn't know exactly what, but I kind of then started doing this type of work. 
and I've been doing it pretty much ever since. So everything from cutting grass for old people for free to mentoring kids to, um, I mean, everything from the arts and crafts programs to, you know, the hardcore uh, things like, you know, that we're doing now. I've been involved in it in some, some aspect, you know, talking with politicians and, and things of that nature. I've just really been involved in every aspect of what's going on here in Pittsburgh. So we talked a little bit about probation and parole. What are some of the other big issues that the campaign for smart justice is going to be diving into? Uh, mandatory minimums, mass incarceration. I've also been a victim of mass incarceration. I was indicted in a 30-man um, indictment in my neighborhood from some of these same guys who I said who protected me and took care of me as being a young guy in our neighborhood. I was um, subsequently sent to prison because I wouldn't um, testify against these guys uh, for information I really didn't know. Um, and so we're really working on that to change those laws, change those policies, mandatory minimums. I was a victim of that. The judge um, told me and my family uh, right there off of uh, off of the stand that, you know, there's not nothing he can do. If there was anything that he could do, uh, he, he would like to see it done. But he's just bound by the power of the district attorney uh, and, and, and that, you know, there's a mandatory minimum in place and that I had to serve this sentence. Um, I wasn't aware at that particular time that the power of the district attorney had, uh, and I didn't. I, I thought that there was a favor that was going to be given. If there was anything that could be done in my situation, it would be um, because I, I had. I, mean, I was a dean's list college student. I was working um, as a real estate broker here in, in Mount Washington, which is a, a pretty nice neighborhood here in our city. And I was, um, you know, I was doing pretty good. Grad student at that particular time at Point Park University. And so I didn't think, think there was any chance or it was unlikely that I would be sent off to prison for the amount of time that I did just because I wouldn't um, uh, offer information that I really didn't have uh, all of it anyway. And um, so we'll be working on those particular issues. That's why it's very important to me. Uh, these are, you know, things that really affect my community every day. I'm not the only person that's been affected like this. Uh, it was a 30-man indictment. Um, there's been more cases since since then. This happened in 2008. We're in 2018, and, and nothing is yet to change. And so there's a lot of people who really need um, who really need our help and need policy change and, and true criminal justice reform. I want to ask you about one particular issue. We've we've put a fair amount of emphasis on DA accountability. That district attorneys um, are probably the most powerful people in the criminal justice system. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Why, why so much emphasis on DAs? Well, I think that there needs to be education on the district attorney seat. Not the person, but just that seat in itself, the power that it holds. I think a lot of times um, during campaigns and during elections, we get so caught up here um, with presidency and senators and, and state reps and mayors that we don't realize that there's another election that's going to be coming up generally in the off year um, and that it's the district attorney and that they have a, a direct result on a lot of things that are happening on with our with our kids and, and with our our day-to-day -day citizens that are going on and um, we just need to educate people about it uh, and, and see uh, what role that plays in true criminal justice reform. Sometimes, So many times we look to the cops. There's a shooting. We, we blame the cop and we wonder why the cop didn't get charged or, or what didn't take place. Well, maybe take a look into the district attorney's seat. We talk about mandatory minimums and how, to, and how they're so unjust. And we look to the attorney generals and so many places. But let's take a look and to see what role our local district attorney has in that and overcharging and why our prison population is so bad and, and everything. You know, just to take a look into that seat, the power that they have, and see if the shoe fits. And if so, maybe we can... Um, institute new policy. That's the most important thing. It's not the person. It's not about being a Republican 
or Democrat. It's not if you sit on the right or the left. It's the policy that takes place. And is it really the most beneficial to people who need the help the most? So I know there in Pittsburgh, in Allegheny County, you are building a coalition, um, particularly with people who have been directly impacted, but also anybody who uh, is willing to help and get involved. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what kind of uh, help the campaign needs? Yeah, we need more people involved. Right now we have a, a great group. So we have about 150 people who are signed on to the coalition. We have um, people from all different walks of life, which is beautiful to see Pittsburgh represented like that. You know, it's a full spectrum from every community that you can think of. But we need more people who care, people who have been investing their dollars in places but haven't actually got their hands dirty to come and get their hands dirty. We need those bright ideas. We need people who care, people who have ideas, um, and people who want to be a part of something that is really going to make a change because these people are committed. You know, we have a group of lawyers. We have people who have political influence. We have people who have um, businesses. We have um, impacted individuals. We have activists or organizational heads. And it's this time to everybody to really put all hands on deck and make sure that this is what we truly want it to be. And I want everybody to be represented from black, brown, white, uh, man, woman, uh, and from all different types of communities. However you see yourself, come be a part of this group. Let your voice be heard and let your actions uh, move forward. All right, Terrell, I really appreciate you taking the time and appreciate your work. I appreciate you. All right, thanks, Terrell. Thank you. Thank you to John Dye and Terrell for their time and their efforts. Be sure to check out the Center for Returning Citizens at tcrcphilly.org. And if you're interested in helping the Campaign for Smart Justice, go to aclupa.org volunteer for directions on how to sign up to help. We are particularly interested in people who have experience with the criminal justice system. And if you've made it this far, you must have enjoyed this episode, so be sure to rate us on your podcast app of choice. That's how more people hear about the podcast and hear what we're sharing about civil liberties. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Schuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.